My guest this week is all about this. She's a proper doctor, but she's also on the cutting edge of using psychedelics in healing. the Mainly Moonology podcast. I'm your host, Yasmin Boland, an award-winning astrologer and the Sunday Times best-selling author of books including Moonology and creator of the Moonology Oracle Cards. My intention for this podcast is to help you understand how you can create your dream life using Mainly Moonology, the moon, as your guide. So I am so excited to be having this conversation today. I'm bringing you a guest who I met when I was in Sedona earlier this year. We met through a mutual friend. We had dinner. And um, Beth, for that is her name, Beth Dupree, Dr. Beth Dupree, Beth gave me a copy of her book, The Healing Consciousness. And uh, it's such an amazing book. And I, I've been, I've actually been listening to it on Audible as I walk around uh, my local area, taking my dog, Jonty, for a walk. And it's really just a litany of amazing, amazing experiences that Beth has had. Let me just give you a little bit of background before I let you speak. Okay, Beth? Go for um, it. So Dr. Beth Bachman Dupree MD is currently serving as the Chief Medical Officer of Inner Still Health, Caliber Medical and Gateway Sciences. Like she's a proper, proper doctor. She maintains her staff privileges at Redeemer Health, Huntington Valley PA and MD Anderson Cancer Affiliate. She's board certified in general surgery and integrative and holistic medicine with 35 years of experience in the surgical care and management of breast cancer. Her career is being committed to treating diseases of the breast with state-of-the-art Western medical technology. So, and it goes on. There's so much more. General surgery, Albert Einstein Medical Center in Philadelphia, certificate in psychedelic-assisted therapies and research, which is what we're going to talk about today, and more and more. So, but let's start off by talking about your book, Beth. How is it that you wrote this great book when you are a breast cancer surgeon are you just talented at everything or did you have some help or it just wrote itself or what's the story there and and what's the message of the book for those people who might be interested in reading it well thank you for this the book started out as a I started journaling back in the late 90s it was part of just really me kind of figuring out who I am what I am I started having all of these experiences that I was actually aware of really being conscious of it late during my surgical residency into my private practice and so I started journaling things and when I was on a cruise to Greece for my 40th birthday so we're talking 22 years ago I was with James von Prague and Brian Weiss and we were on the voyage of enlightenment on the Wind Spirit uh, cruise ship. And during that trip, the one evening, we had just left uh, Kushadasi, Turkey, and we're headed to Greece. And we rescued um, two Afghani refugees from the middle of the Aegean Sea. Mm -hmm. And that night after the Hellenic Ghost Coast Guard had picked them up, I woke up, I went in the bathroom, and I didn't know what automatic writing was. And it just started. And it was boom. Like my hand couldn't go as fast as my brain was going, but it wasn't even my brain that was going. And I started writing and writing and it's actually one chapter, which was completely unedited. It was just boom. And, you know, I woke up the next morning, you know, went back and read it. And I was like, where did this come from? And my conscious left brain was like, okay, 
You're a surgeon. You don't need to write a book. You have no reason to write a book. And honestly, from that time forward until the book was published, which was several years, I would be woken up at 444 in the morning. That's my angel number, 444. I'd wake up and I'd start writing. And, and then after I wrote what I needed to write, I was able to go back to sleep. And my girlfriend, Chris, had been diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. And I really felt compelled to write the story because she was a huge part of how I learned about what healing was as opposed to um, curing and treating, which is what we do in Western medicine is how we're trained to do it. And Chris was such a, an important teacher on that journey. I, I finished it. I finished the book, I guess, in 2000, in 2005, that January, and uh, gave it to Chris to read, which she read it and she loved it. And then she passed away in uh, November of 2005 on All Souls Day. And two weeks later, I got two emails from different people about publishing my book. And I was like, okay, this is bizarro. Now my girlfriend's in spirit. Now I got this, you know, um, desire or whatever. And um, I reached back out to the, to the publishers. And so that was in November of 2000, 2005. I held the book in my hand in June of June of 2006. And you as an author, you know, that was pretty quick. Um, yeah, I mean, really quick. quick. It was a labor of love. It was basically wanting to be able to share these stories of healing and synchronicity and synchrodestiny and spirituality with my patients. Cause I couldn't sit in a room and tell each patient every story, but I was able to write the book. And so that is how that book came to being. And right. it wasn't like it wasn't like it was on my punch list of uh, things to do in my life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the fact that you are very cosmic. <laughs> I know that from reading the book that there's all these synchronicities that you followed. Uh, I mean, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but it's things like, you know, finding the exact right right office space at the exact place that you needed it for the exact amount that you wanted it and this sort of thing. I don't know, that that kind of, those synchronicities that, you know, happens to people when they're kind of being on the magical path. But how did you feel about your kind of expansion into this side of life? And um, also your colleagues, they're pretty straight-laced, a lot of doctors. The medical community tends to be very straight-laced and even a little bit wary of anyone who's a bit sort of cosmic. How's that been for you? Has that been an issue or have people just gone, oh, no, that's just Beth, or how is it? I'm sure it depends who you talk to. There's a lot of different people that have different um, thoughts and beliefs about me. I spoke at a, my national breast cancer meeting, I believe it was in 2004, the first time about the importance of integrative care of our patients. And I was on the main stage in San Diego, you know, some people would say I was going out on a limb, but I was going out on a really strong branch of a limb of a tree that I believed that my colleagues could benefit from. Mm -hmm. And afterwards, so many of my colleagues came up to me and said, well, I've had the same thoughts. I, I really needed to hear this. When my book got published in 2006, I have I mean, I've saved the cards, the emails from so many of my medical colleagues who said, thank you for speaking your truth, because I've had similar experiences, but I haven't been brave enough to talk about it. And, and, and just to, to be clear here for people who haven't read the book, it's basically the idea that Western medicine can cut out the tumor, but there's a lot of other healing that needs to be done when someone is unwell. Does that kind of sum it up? Right. And, and you know, in Western medicine, we have really perfected acute care, like a ruptured spleen, a ruptured appendix. But when it comes to chronic illness and mental wellness, 
we have not even begun to scratch the surface of what we can do to help someone heal at a soul's level. That was my, you know, that integrative medicine piece was my first, I'm not going to say departure from Western medicine. I'm going to say it was an expansion of my Western medicine education. I took my really great Western medicine knowledge that I had been given and that I had spent time learning and then enhanced it by adding you know, nutrition and exercise and nutraceuticals and microbiome and all of those things that we know can enhance that. And that was really my stepping stone to where I am right now, which is getting back to the root cause of disease, which oftentimes begins with adverse childhood events, which with, you know, our thought forms and beliefs that we live with, which is part of what we call the default mode network, which is how your brain processes and functions on a day-to-day basis. And our default mode network is there to, pro- to protect us from the world, but it also holds us back from learning exactly who we are and what our soul's purpose is. So, okay, the thing that when I hear what you've just said, what leaps out to me is these childhood experiences. We've all had them. So what do we do about those childhood experiences so they don't explode into illness in later life? What can you do? Well, we've gotten really good at compartmentalizing in in our Western world. And what I didn't realize until I started my training in psychedelic therapy was how adverse childhood events or ACEs affect people's risk for not just cancer, but depression and chronic illness. And having, you know, having now recognized that I've spent my 35 year career so far as a surgeon without really addressing those, like, I knew that when my patients came in with cancer, all of their lifetime crap is unpacked. Like they might have a four piece set of luggage with their lifetime baggage of stuff. It gets unpacked during cancer. I mean, literally. And cutting out the cancer or radiating in chemo, that will treat the physical manifestations of the cancer. But how do you repack all that stuff that's now been unpacked? So that was the gift of me being a cancer surgeon all these years is recognizing You know, you don't have to have been beaten or molested as a child to have events from your past become part of your processing network of how you live every day. But what it's given me is that gift to realize that, yeah, we still need to do what we need to do to treat the physical body. But if we can begin to address these issues in a different way, does that physical body then need that message of cancer to awaken its? soul to understand why we're why you're on the planet so is this where psychedelics come in um it's where psychedelics where breath work where stimulation of the vagus nerve um and this is where my you know when you gave my little intro there the companies that i'm working with people might say well how do they how are they all connected you know a non-narcotic pain patch how is that connected to psychedelics which is connected to breath work which is connected to stimulation of the vagus nerve. Well, I got a very clear message in my meditation, how they're all connected because, you know, we have an opioid crisis going on in the world. Everybody knows that. Well, especially um, in the States. We don't have one here in the UK, I don't think. As, I don't as, know. Not as, not as bad. You, you yeah. have it, but not nearly as bad. Yeah. But what happens is, you know, when I do surgery and someone has a surgical procedure and to be able to have an option to avoid narcotics for that post-operative pain, is going to be a game changer. And that's what the non-narcotic pain patch it can potentially do. I just had two people who were very, very important in my life have surgery and surgery that typically 
involves pain medicine, use these patches to be able to avoid narcotics. So if you can avoid those narcotics, 30% of the population is at risk for addiction just by pinging those receptors. So um, a lot of people live with chronic pain. Chronic pain then leads to depression and anxiety, and that leads to more medication. So that's how that's involved. The transcranial and the transcutaneous stimulation of the vagus nerve um, can help bring people out of fight or flight and back into rest and digest, which helps to rebalance the homeostasis of the body, bringing you back to a place where you're not reactive, but you can become gently responsive. The way psychedelics fit in is plant medicine, which has been around for thousands of years, can be utilized to help to allow someone's default mode network to stop running the program for that short period of time to have an ability to access memories in a very safe container. So this is not about going out and dropping shrooms with your friends. This is about using, you know, psilocybin, MDMA, using ayahuasca in an appropriate set and setting where you are actually in a place where someone can be appropriately monitored and guided through and then integrate what they learn. And then that final piece is something that has been part of my life. And I know obviously part of yours with your trips to India, you know, the yogic breathwork, the, the Vedic knowledge, the knowledge that we have with the utilization of our breath has the ability to get people to this place. But most people can't stop the chatter in their brain long enough to be able to do that breathwork, which is so transformative. And that's where I'm working with um, Ishan Shivanand with Shiv Yog to be able to utilize that breathwork. So this isn't about someone needing a psychedelic forever. It's not about someone having to be hooked up to a machine forever. This is about saying, okay, all of this can come back to this place where we've lived these cluttered lives so fast paced moving forward that we're not actually being present in that moment. And so I believe that we're going to be able to create a huge shift. And it's funny because I, I wondered if I didn't listen correctly and I just corrected the grammar of my first book, which instead of the healing consciousness, is it the healing of consciousness? Like how do we allow our consciousness, our conscious beings to actually be present and to figure out who we are at a soul's level? So, so many questions, so many questions, Beth. The first one is, how is taking psilocybin with you any different from taking shrooms with your mates? Or indeed, I believe you also work with ketamine, uh, which I know, you know, people take for fun as well. What's the difference between hanging out with your mates and doing that kind of stuff and doing it with someone who actually, you know, has has worked in this area? What's the difference? Got it. So... The way I, I'm stealing this from um, Ishan Shivanand, who said that uh, if you go, if you would go and drop shrooms, drop acid, um, take ketamine, vitamin K, as I call it, um, recreationally, it's like having a tourist visa, where if you go to a country and you have a tourist visa and something goes bad, you may really end up in a bad place because um, you may not have a consulate to be able to help you. Okay. If you are a citizen of a country or a citizen um, of a, of an, of some place in the world where you have safeguards to protect you. Um, if something goes bad, you have the opportunity to be able to have someone help you to work your way through it. 
a lot of people who have who have taken these recreationally have had no issues. But the problem is if someone who has a history of psychosis um, has other comorbidities and medical issues like high blood pressure, diabetes, um, uh, thoracic aortic aneurysm, um, there are so many contraindications to doing these medications that if it's not done in a set and setting, an experience where someone say, oh my God, I had a bad trip. If you have a bad trip, it doesn't mean that you didn't learn something to grow from it. But if you can't integrate that and move forward, you can end up in a, in a kind of a hamster wheel pattern. And so that's why the training in psychedelic therapy is so important. It's why I believe, you know, because of the war on drugs, like the, all of these drugs got basically um, labeled bad because of, I'm going to say trips gone bad where people had bad experiences. And then that was then taken to a place that, oh, they're all bad. And that's not the case. And so in order for us to be able to bring this really, these life-changing plant medicines and entheogens back into a world where they're accepted across the board, we need to do it with the safeguards. We need to do it in the appropriate set and setting. And that's why the work that I'm doing, I think is so important because doing this in a research setting right now, until it's legalized and then doing it in a therapeutic setting is setting the stage for us to really be able to help so many people to get into a place of mental wellness. So let's talk about the fact that, for example, psilocybin has basically been proven to be able to cure depression. Is that correct? Have I got that right? Um, it is a plant medicine that has clearly been shown to enhance one's ability to alleviate their depression. Um, it's been done in clinical settings, but it's not legalized yet as, you know, for depression. Um, it's in the process of getting there. There are some states that have decriminalized it, but it clearly has shown that benefit. One of the it's reasons been why legalized it's legalized so in Australia, is, right? Yeah, in, in Australia in July, MDMA and psilocybin have been decriminalized and they will be able to be utilized, I believe, by psychiatrists only. It's not going to be by, you know, a psychotherapist. Um, and there's going to be a lot of guardrails in place with that. But that's setting the stage for, for this global process. But what people have to realize, it's not just about, you know, in cancer patients, which is why I'm so interested in this, typical antidepressants that would be given as a prescription do not work. They're only as effective as placebo. So that's why for me, this is such an important piece to be able to legalize this, particularly in cancer patients, because that existential crisis that comes from cancer is not a typical depression that somebody would be getting a, a pill for from their doctor. And because we know that it doesn't work, that's what makes this so important. Same thing with ketamine for refractory depression. We know that in a certain percentage of the population that have refractory depression, we are able to um, utilize this as, as a tool in our toolbox for mental wellness. So it's a, this is a really, it's a very nuanced emerging world. I'm going to the 2023 MAPS Psychedelic Conference, and I'm very excited about it because this is where the global leaders are going to be coming together in order to um, really help us to begin this process of, okay, now that we're getting here, how do we maintain the safety? Because the efficacy is so good, like it's so effective that we have to make sure that we have safeguards in place 
so that we don't end up going backwards to a time where people get fearful of, you know, our collective consciousness expanding, you know? Hmm. Yeah, it's just a fascinating subject. So how did you get drawn into the world of psychedelics from from Western medicine? Had you already, like, you'd, you'd already sort of got on the spiritual path and started noting the synchronicities and started realizing that there is more to life than meets the eye and, and then it was sort of a natural progression? Because it, it is quite a leap. Oh, it's a it's an unbelievable leap. It's like it's like jumping off the diving board in the deep end, not knowing whether there's water in the pool. I mean, yeah. it's that big. <laughs> um, so in 2019, I was preparing for a lecture for the Healthy World Sedona Conference on nutrition. I was giving a lifestyle modification lecture for cancer patients for can- about cancer, and I I love Michael Pollan's book Food Rules. So what happened was I was pulling some slides, some pictures off the internet. And I saw that he had published a new book a couple months earlier called How to Change Your Mind. And I thought, because he's written so much about nutrition, I thought it was How to Change Your Mind about nutrition. And so I downloaded it on Audible and started listening to it as I'm driving to work in December of 2019. And here this guy's like talking about LSD and mushrooms. I'm like, oh my God, like, because I I am a non-drug taker. Like I am anti-drugs on so many levels. And it's so funny because I start listening to this and I'm going, oh my gosh. Like this guy's making compelling arguments to the point that I actually then got the book on, on Kindle so I could look at the references. And I started pulling out all the papers from Johns Hopkins with Bill Richards and, um, and stuff from Stan Groff and so many amazing, you know, um, Dr. Ross and, and just, you know, maps, looking at maps and, and all of the people who have been instrumental in this, in this so-called movement. Once I pulled the scientific papers, started reading all the papers, started learning everything from these that I could, I was like, oh my God, where have I been? I have been so far off the, uh, you know, off this turnip truck of, you know, I just felt like I was behind the times. Like if this stuff is happening in cancer care and I don't know about this, why is that? So that's what started the process. So I actually, you know, looked into the training programs and it's very funny because I was a psychedelic virgin. I had not done anything because obviously I have a medical license and didn't want to lose my license. And so had to go to places in the world where these are legal to actually experience it. I did that. And I will say, once you see, you cannot unsee. Once you actually have that knowledge in your consciousness of what can, what's possible, you can't go backwards. And so for me, it was a natural progression. And now, you know, I'm trained by CIIS maps and synthesis. And, you know, my goal is to do research in this space to help facilitate journeys. I'm going to Mexico to get additional training because I want to be working with the veterans as a facilitator. And I feel really, you know, I'm very, very passionate about this work and we need to bring it mainstream. And sometimes it takes some of us mainstream doctors who have global credibility in their space to, you know, pull the line and help, you know, make that path so other people can help follow. I've even seen Dr. Deepak Chopra attending conferences or speaking at conferences about psychedelics. So he must be a little, I haven't heard him, but I've seen his name on the lineup. So he must be somewhat on board. Do you know about that? He totally is. I, I met Deepak a couple of times. I was at a conference with him last February down in Florida because we took our, our um, MindVibe, our um, Vegas technology down there 
for wellness, which he was also very thrilled about. And he was very excited that, um, you know, another Western trained doctor is interested in this hit. I think he'll probably be out at the conference in, um, with Rick Doblin and, and the whole crew out at, uh, at the maps conference in, in Denver. But this, this is a, and it's more than a movement. This is a, it's a transformation in thought of how we help people heal at a much deeper level. So much of Western medicine is a place that is a pill for the ill. It's about, it's about just doing a quick fix and we can't quick fix things, anything. Yeah. We can't do that anymore. We can, we cannot, we cannot rely on pharmacologic intervention to treat a symptom when the root cause is not being addressed. It's wrong. We just can't do it. So what you're saying, for example, is that someone presents with breast cancer, that you give them the regular treatment of taking out the tumor and the radiation yep. or chemo or whatever, but you also then give them psychedelic aftercare. Is that it or before care or during well, care? What, what I'm proposing we do is the studies in cancer care have been done with end stage patients, which means people who are stage three or four that are very close to the end of their life. And what I believe is to do this work after someone has completed their tradition Western medical care. So they've done their surgery, chemo, radiation, whatever. Um, at that point, do these trials with single dose psilocybin and then follow patients up for quality of life, for recurrence, um, for everything. Because this is where I think we can have our biggest impact. And it's something that I believe is part of my calling as a physician to to bring this to you know to western medicine and and in a nutshell beth are you saying that by having say a psilocybin journey after the you know post-operatively for a breast cancer patient for example that it will help them avoid uh, not have a recurrence that's why we have to do research because you can't make any assumptions until you actually have prospective randomized data and to do that it's going to take several years but what we do know is that stress plays a huge role in cancer care. We know that if, if patients are not sleeping well, eating well, exercising well, that they have a higher risk of recurrence. One of the factors that stops those healthy lifestyle attributes or changes is if someone can't get out of the, if their brain is constantly cycling and they're in fight or flight all the time, they're in high cortisol level, they're you know, they're constantly in fear that their cancer is going to come back. I say we can cut cancer out, but if someone sits in their kitchen with their lights off waiting for their cancer to come back, I've not actually helped that patient heal. So one of the reasons why this research is so important is if we take um, these patients early on and do this single dose psilocybin and then follow these patients out for five to 10 years, that is how long this research is going to take to be able to come to fruition, to be able to know about recurrence. I know that we can tell quality of life right away, but I think that we need to shift gears. I mean, that's, that's so, the name of my is, second book. It's called Shifting what Gears. Is, what is making you think that it has an effect? Is it because you're saying people who do the single dose psilocybin have a better quality of life, therefore they're going to be less stressed, therefore they're less likely to re attract a recurrence? Well, there must be a reason, I'm sure. I, I know there must be. But what is the reason that's sort well, of putting you in that direction? What's the evidence so far or, you know, what? In a nutshell, um, that's it because after a diagnosis, when when somebody kind of like wipes their hands and says, okay, my cancer is done. I'm going on with my life. 
and you don't actually take that look at, okay, what, where are your opportunities? I call them opportunities for improvement. How, how can you live a better, more balanced life? If cancer doesn't change anything in your life, you know, I, I always say just going to be waiting for another two by four to hitch upside the head. That cancer is a disruptive process in someone's life. So it's an opportunity to say, okay, how do, how do you want to live the rest of your life? You know, you, how, how do you want to be able to go forward? And in, I have many patients who have made those major shifts. They've had those spiritual awakenings. They've had that, that deep dive into self-care that actually do better. As a result of the psychedelics. Well, no, as a, as a result of, as of those lifestyle changes, but a lot of people can't make those lifestyle moves because they're trapped in that default mode network. They're trapped in that, in that drama in their head. And if you can take them out of their head, out of that drama, okay, and bring them into their heart, that 18 inches between your head and your heart is a very long distance when someone has cancer in particular. Because if you stay in that head space, but you don't get into that heart space, like when your heart opens, and that's one of the things that can happen with the psychedelics, with MDMA, with psilocybin, is to get to that place where you kind of get real with yourself. Um, I, I, and I, I won't know until we do the research whether my belief or whether my theory is correct, but that's why we do Western medical research because in order to prove a theory, you have to do that scientific method to be able to get there. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, I could go move to another country and be an underground therapist and just treat person by person by person. But to me, I think that one of the reasons why I have been brought on this path is to bring these two worlds together, is to create a connection in the universe to bring these worlds together. But there must be some evidence, you know, that you've seen or something that's making you, you know, theorize like this. I mean, it's not just a complete shot in the dark that psychedelics are going to. No, no, it's not. It's not a shot in the dark. It's when you look at research with with cancer, with breast cancer patients, stage two and three cancer patients that actually uh, adopt a healthy lifestyle, have psychosocial support, do yoga or have mindfulness. We know stage for stage, grade for grade, they do better. But what I'm saying is if someone can't get out of that cycle, and this is where psychedelics can help because it can help with the depression and the anxiety. And we know that through clinical trials in patients that are depressed to be able to help someone with cancer, to alleviate that darkness, to alleviate that fear, to cut out that fear, then they can do the other things that are going to be able to help them have a healthier life and to be able to have a less, a lower risk of cancer recurrence. That's where the connection is, because what I know from the research that's already been done in cancer care and the research that's been done with depression, anxiety and psychedelics, that's where I see the connection. And then don't we then say, well, what about using it as a preventative? Well, that's my theory, is that if we can do this in cancer patients, then why don't we address these issues much earlier on through a therapeutic process? There are a lot of people that go in that do therapy and spend 10 years of therapy you know, on a weekly basis with therapists. And I'm sure you're aware of Brian Weiss and past life regression. Obviously you, you read his intro in my book, his, yeah. his forward, you know, when Brian first started doing past life regression, a lot of psychiatrists are like, well, why would I want to help somebody that quickly? Because they're going to leave my practice and then it hurts their income. This <laughs> is about physicians and therapists becoming healers at their core and recognizing there's so many people out there to heal. There's so many people out there to heal. And some of the technologies that the transcranial technology we have, which absolutely helps treat anxiety and depression, 
I've had a therapist say, well, if, if we use that, then they're not going to need me. And I almost fell over because I'm thinking, really? So are you a therapist or are you a healer? I am a healer that chose to be a physician and a surgeon. I'm not a surgeon and a physician that is figuring out how to become a healer. I am a healer to my core. It is my calling. You know, my job was being a doctor. My career was being a breast cancer surgeon. And my calling is being a healer. And that is why I'm being brought into these spaces. Because when you are in flow with your calling, things begin to align in a way that are undeniable. And they just show up. And so what I agree 100%. What what I'm wondering as well, around the world, we've seen marijuana being legalized and being called medical marijuana and hasn't actually happened here in the UK, but it's happened obviously in quite a few states in the US. Uh, I know it's happened in Thailand because I was there quite recently and there's suddenly, you know, shops all over the place, coffee shops like in Amsterdam, and now it's legal in Malta. What do you think about that? Is that the same thing? Is that... Not the same thing. What what do you think about that marijuana? Well, I, I'm going to tell you that I I there's a great book by Alex Berenson called What to Tell Your Children. I think it's I think that's the name of it. Um, and it's a it's a book about marijuana. Um, I do not believe, and this is my own personal belief, not anybody else's. I do not believe that marijuana should be legal um, in, for someone until they have reached the age of about 26 because our, our brains are so immature at that point. And, um, there's definitely, um, associations with, you know, a certain percentage of people having psychotic breaks. I believe marijuana has a very, um, important place in healthcare. I believe that the, that CBD, um, CBN have are those receptors are right there for the, for the, you know, for the treatment of a lot of things for immune issues. Marijuana and THC in the marijuana is the real, is the real, that's the psychoactive component. And I, I was not a fan of the mass legalization of marijuana. I, that's, that's just my honest, that's my personal opinion. Um, It's, it's a, as a drug, um, it has wonderful capabilities, you know, like in cancer patients, the Marinol, that's the prescription form of it. Um, THC can be wonderful in cancer patients. So the medical utilization of marijuana, a hundred percent. Um, and I'm not saying that marijuana should be illegal, but I have concerns with our youth, you know, kids, you know, teenagers into their mid twenties. Um, I really believe that we put a lot of people at risk by having it legalized at that age. Um, so the legalization of marijuana to me is different than the, um, the utilization of psilocybin and MDMA and, and the entheogens, because marijuana has not been allowed to be studied just because, you know, the, the, the number of studies, um, for treatment of depression, anxiety, it's, it, to me, it's different. It's, um, some people use marijuana to medicate their anxiety. Um, and I get that. I, I, they're, they're completely, they're very different. They're very different aspects of plant medicines. Um, so, you know, I don't want to get marijuana, um, lovers mad at me. I I believe that there is a place for it. I believe that it, it, it should be legalized, but I think there should also be some guardrails, um, just because I wouldn't want my kids smoking it as teenagers or in their mid twenties. If a 30 year old son of mine said, Hey, I want to smoke marijuana. I'm not going to stop him. 
um, because at, at that point his brain is developed and, and whatever. Um, but for the mass populations, I think it's, again, it's just like, I don't believe that psychedelics should be wildly, widely legalized recreationally because I, they are such amazing windows to your soul that I believe that until, until we have more work in this space where it's legalized in a clinical setting, I just have concerns that we're going to, we could lose something so valuable to our health and well-being, And I don't want to see that happen. And what about if, you know, an 18 year old person comes to you terribly anxious and depressed, are they too young for a psilocybin treatment? Well, the first thing I would do with an 18-year-old because of the, the work that I'm doing is I would have them use our Vegas stimulator from MindVibe. I would start with, a, I would start with something non-invasive. What and is then that I would, exactly? Is that a machine? It is a, it's a um, electroceutical technology. Interstill Health is the parent company. It is a non-invasive technology that stimulates the vagus nerve um, on two, two points on their earlobes and two places on the right side of the neck and the inner ear. And those five 25-minute sessions have the ability to take someone out of um, fight or flight and into rest and digest. It's, if someone's anxious, it, their sympathetic nervous system is typically overloaded. So it helps to stimulate the um, parasympathetic nervous system, which helps bring them into alignment. And that technology is out. We ju it's just getting commercially launched next week in Boca Raton, Florida. Um, we're going to be doing a clinical trial in addiction. I'm going to be in, in Florida next week. <laughs> no way. What's yes, going well, to I'm, I'm, I'm probably be, that, be left by the time you get there. I'm going tomorrow. Oh, well, when you come to Sedona in October, I will have you try it. But it's um, it's something that it's not just for people that are anxious or depressed. I think, you know, for executive functioning, I mean, I know I sleep better with it. This is going to be a, you know, it's a wellness technology. So it's really about creating homeostasis in our body. So let's say, so you say about an 18-year-old doing mushrooms, yet to be seen. Most of the research has been done in older populations. Mm -hmm. um, but, but I believe that there are many tools in our toolbox. Um, one of the first things that I would try to do with, with a, a teenager who is anxious is to try to get them to learn to be able to be comfortable with their breath. And that's where the yogic meditation comes in as well. So, so it's not, it's not yeah, one size fits all. Yeah. So Beth, do you think that, I mean, what's your feeling about the future of medicine? Do you think more and more people are going to start to say, well, maybe you should try breath work, you know, rather than maybe you should try lithium or whatever, you know? I think that we are at a, right now, post COVID, we are at an inflection point in healthcare where we need to really focus on treating chronic illness with sustainable, appropriate means of affecting the root cause. You know, the root cause of obesity is not a genetic issue, basically. We've become a society of obesity because we're stressed. Some people eat too much, they don't exercise enough, and it gets this, you know, progressive process where what, what is someone medicating with the food? What are they actually trying to to do is, is that, is that comfort and food? I know in my family, it is. I mean, we grew up like that. It, it's something that food was always comfort. And so, um, as we start to begin to look at chronic illness, you know, 
obesity has replaced tobacco as our number one health issue. And so, you know, we as a society have to say, okay, how do we become healthier as a society? How do we make health and wellness a priority? And so we have to have Western medicine for treatment of acute disease. Absolutely bar none. And I'm not telling people not to get their their surgery, chemo and radiation for cancer. I'm not telling someone to not get a joint replacement when they need it. But what I'm saying is every time you're, you're also have, not telling them to go out and take mushrooms. Correct. You just, you just don't go take mushrooms. It's not, it's not a panacea. It's not a, it's not a magic bullet. It is a tool in the toolbox. And we've gotten so far down this road of, um, and, you know, medicalization of everything and the pill for the ill and the quick fix that, taking that step backwards to say, okay, how do we get to, you know, how do we get people who live in food deserts to be able to have healthy food to eat? And how do we inspire them or help them to understand the importance of that? You know, so, you know, I wish, I wish I had an easy answer to all of this. I, I am kind of staying in my little world of cancer care with psychedelics, because as we are able to help this population improve the efficacy of our treatments, we're going to be able to then create the opportunity for those individuals to help change their children, their grandchildren, and their communities. Yeah, and when I hear that, though, I just think, but it has to be, you know, looked at as a preventative as well. Because Absolutely. otherwise you just, you know, it's after the horse has bolted. But, you know, and that's where the whole big farmer wanting everybody to get sick because then they need all their drugs. That's, you know, that's the whole, I mean, and it's not a conspiracy theory. It's a fact. No, I mean, prevention is key. And uh, yeah. listen, I, I'm going to have the biggest target on my back from big pharma because I'm going after the narcotics and the non-steroidal yeah, anti-inflammatories. I'm going after the, the antidepressants, anxiolytics and sleepers, you know, and those, those are not, those are not small ticket items. I mean, this is, it's a massive, massive, you know, um, market. Isn't it like a trillion dollar bin? Oh, it's, I don't know. It's probably more than that. It's unbelievable. You know, just the fact that, you know, I have, I have patients who friends and family who have used signal relief, our our non-narcotic pain patch. They've used this pain patch to alleviate the need for narcotics. And I have some doctors saying, Oh, well, it's a, it's a placebo. Well, in our clinical trial, we've already proven it's way beyond placebo effective. That's why I now have to do a prospective randomized, you know, pivotal placebo controlled trial to get through the FDA. And then when I get to the FDA, you know, it depends who's in charge there, you know, and this is where hopefully because of the war on drugs, right now, the war on um, opioids, I'm hoping that Congress who funds the FDA is going to be smart enough to say, hey, listen, they can't block this because this, you know, this one technology has the ability to potentially shift it shift healthcare in so many ways. Can you imagine that going into surgery and coming out with your pain patch on, not needing any narcotics? Do you think that's going to be a big change? Increasing mobility, like someone that has to have a joint replacement? It's a big deal. Yeah. It also I'm meeting with some the thing that occurs to me is women who have cesareans, because the last thing you want yeah. are all the drugs going around your body when you're first breastfeeding your kid. And it works amazingly on post-operative incisions. Mm, amazing. Well, I'm it's a, sure it's, it's a big deal. It's all good stuff. Yeah, it's definitely something. It's definitely a, a thing to watch. You know, it's going to develop. And and, you know, and and Yasmin, I'm going to tell you, I my I just had my uh, 
next to your reading with my Vedic astrologer. It's all in my chart. This is, um, it's, it's all there. It is all there, my dear. Right. Well, I'm going to see you in October. We can talk more. I can't so, wait. Beth, um, we've got five copies of your book that we can give people a link to. How do we do that? Do we just put it in the show notes or? Uh, you can put it in the show notes and uh, if, or if you email me their email addresses. Um, uh, did I, I think I already copied and pasted them to you. So yeah, you just you just I'll copy put something and paste in the them. show notes for anybody who wants to get a free Perfect. link to read the book. And otherwise, they can find you on your website, correct, Doctor Beth yep. Dupree, D U P R E E, and you are in Sedona. Yep. All right. Well, stay on the line. I'm gonna I'm gonna bid you farewell for my recording. So thank you for being here. And thank uh, you for having me. Anybody who's got any questions, go to Beth's website. It's a fascinating, fascinating, paradigm-smashing area, in my humble opinion. Thanks, Beth. Thanks for having me, Yasmin. I'll see you soon. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Mainly Moonology podcast. If you'd like to stay updated with the moon and moonology and astrology and all the other things we cover, be sure to subscribe to the podcast via Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You'll be notified whenever a new episode is up. Also, it would mean a lot to me and my team if you could leave us a glowing five-star review on your podcast platform of choice, please. That actually helps more people find us too, which spreads the love and surely also brings you amazing karma for taking a moment to help us out and to help other people find the podcast. Have a great week and I hope to speak to you next week. Lots of love. Thank you for listening to the Mainly Moonology podcast. If you want to take Moonology to the next level and manifest the life of your dreams, join our growing community of magical people who come together to lift each other up as we meditate, manifest and reclaim the magic that has been inside us all along. Head over to mainlymoonologymembership.com and awaken your true powers.